Okay, so today on my fairly home territory in Devon with Roy Harknett. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us today, Roy. Um, best describe you as a veteran, veteran stable lad. Well, yeah, you could call me that. <laughs> right, first of all, Roy, this is an unusual start for all of these. Show us a tattoo, will you? There, they're not many stable lads love their horses so much they get their names on them. So um, what's the awesome, what's the story? Well, his name was Barberin and he was owned by Johnny Big, who also owned Oxo, the Grand National winner. And he came to us as a, a backward three-year-old, unbroken. And I saw him and I thought, I like that horse. So we became buddies. And um, he was a lovely horse, gentle. You could do anything. You could walk. I've, I've actually walked between his back legs. He stood over 17 hands, three eye. And he was just a pleasure to look after. And you were looking after him for Willie Stevenson? For Willie Stevenson at Royston in Hertfordshire. Uh, I went there in 1957. And I think I left there 1960. Okay, so how old were you when you started working for him? Well, I I, had, I left home when I was 14, and I went there just for the Easter, just to see whether I liked it, and I did like it. And he said to me, parents, well, he can stay. He said, I'll get him in the school here, and he can finish his schooling in Royston. So that's basically what I did. And uh, some of the best years of my life there. Really enjoyed it. Great life, great friends I've made and still friends with and um, it was just a fantastic time in my life. Now, now Willie Stevenson I've got, is going back a bit and but for people that don't know he trained uh, three times champion hurdle winner Sir Ken, the 1950 Derby winner Arctic Prince and Grand National winner Oxo yeah. so he was a big he was a big yard back when you started working. For yeah him. he was he was you know sort of well known through the racing game and uh, he was a character, really was a character. And um, up until about two, maybe four years ago, we used to have a reunion every year in Royston. And uh, his youngest daughter is still alive, used, used to come along as well. And um, before he died, um, Dennis Ryan, he came along with Marcella, his eldest daughter. And I believe Elizabeth come one year. She was she was the, the third, I think, third or fourth daughter. So where, where did you, you moved to Royston? So yes, where, I where moved. We, where, were you, where did you move from? Where were you brought up? I was brought up in Enfield, North London. Right, so you was a city boy. Well, yeah, but although, yes, I was a city boy, but I always loved horses. Um, well... Started off with donkeys at the Sands at Blackpool, and then uh, when I moved, well, we lived in Enfield, and I used to help the Coleman to fold his sacks up, and because he had an horse, he had an horse called Churchill. I can remember one day I come home after helping him, a bit black, and um, I, I said to my mum, Churchill's not all that well, he's ill. And she thought I was talking about Winston Churchill, but I wasn't. I was talking about Churchill the horse. <laughs> um, but that was, and there was a lot of horses around them times. And believe it or not, there was more horses killed or put down 
in the 50s and 60s than any other time in history, even through the wars and that, because all the baker's horses, all the milkman's horses, uh, throughout the country were put down and the electric motors come in. So it's, um, it was a very sad time for horses, really. But uh, that's the way life is, unfortunately, at the moment. So where you were working with William Stevenson, they were obviously well looked after racehorses. Oh. But the staff had it quite hard, didn't they? Oh, the staff had it very hard. You were only ever late once, and you only went up the yard with dirty boots once because you've got such a good hiding that you didn't want to have that again. You, you actually mean a good hiding as well, don't oh, you? Oh, yes. He, he'd kick you up the backside, smack you around the head. And, uh, yeah, it was... But it was good It was good times and all. But there was a lad that ended up down the concrete steps chasing Oh, yeah. One day, I think his name was... Because we all had nicknames. I think his name was Popcorn. And he didn't get up one morning and um, Willie come in and he just dragged him out of bed, threw him down these concrete stairs and hit him with a long tom. And what's a long tom? A long tom is what the huntsmen have when they go out hunting. It's a, a, a short cane with a bone handle and then uh, a leather plaited whip at the end of it. Blimey. So it, it's, things have changed a bit now. Oh, you're not allowed to do nothing now. Well, and also, you both might be saying, you had a bit of a terrifying initiation as well, didn't oh, you? Yes, I did. I was stripped, greased, and um, put in a hay net and hung, hung up in a uh, hay barn for, well, best part of the afternoon. <laughs> and and the boss turned a blind eye to all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. That that was that was all part of the being part of the racing fraternity, I suppose. Uh, so when you were there, you were fourteen. So it must yeah. have been quite scary. You lived in a hostel. Yeah, I lived in a hostel. Uh, well, I, I went there when I was fourteen, which was the Easter. And he said to me parents, "Well, if he likes it, he can stay, and I'll um, arrange for him to go to the local school here." which he did, and I quite, you know, I enjoyed it because it was away from home. You were free. You had to be in weekdays by quarter past ten and half past ten on a Saturday, which was great. So you went out and you used to go to the pictures, but in them days I think it was under two shillings, about one anointments, I think, to go to the pictures, and you couldn't afford to take your girlfriends, so you met them inside. Was there any was there any girls in working in the yard? No, I I did say to him when I got up a bit older and a bit bolder. I said, Governor, I said, why haven't we got any girls working here? And he said, Well, Roy, he said, I've got uh, five daughters. He said, and that's enough to look after and worry about. He said, <laughs> I won't say what else he said to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, yeah, carry on, you sorry, can ima you can imagine what he was saying. Now you, you right. So it's hard work, but how many horses would you look after and ride out? Well, you would look after a minimum of two, and maybe up to four, or you could even have five. But mostly, uh, it varied because you had the flat horses that was running sort of from uh, March through till 
October, November, and then the jumpers would come in September time, or maybe a bit earlier than that, end of August, and then you had the yearlings coming in for next season. So in in August was your busiest months, so you might have five or six horses to look after. Not that they would... Some would be winding down, so they would just eventually be turned out uh, to grass, but the colts would never go out. Um, they were stuck in their boxes, and they may maybe let loose in the paddock um, now and again, just on their own to have a pick of grass and get their minds back into normal being horses yeah. instead of race horses. So you used to did you used to ride them out then? Yeah, I was. Where, where did you? I mean, you you used to hang around with the the Bakers and the Coleman's horses. Oh, yeah. But how did you learn to ride? Um, well, I used to go to in Chinkford. There was a riding school, and I eventually plucked up courage on my own and went up there and started mucking out. And I got a free ride. Well, so this is this is before you started working. Yeah, before then. I so started you, working in racing. And you, um, now they they used to clove you in some nice clobber. Oh yeah. We, it goes back years ago now, I can remember we used to have <coughs> one brown herringbone suit, which we used to call a muck sack suit. All the lads called them muck. And then when you, when you had a, a looked after some horses that won races, you might get an extra maybe 15, 20 pound. You could afford to uh, buy a grey suit, a nice, you know, so it's smart to go out with, on a Saturday night, <clears throat> and um, you used to get a pair of jobbers and a pair of boots, which were ex-army ladies' uh, boots, what they used to wear, because we all had fairly small feet then, and uh, so that's what we used to get. What, land girl boots? Yeah, land, land army girl boots, yeah. Now, did the, so you, you talk about um, the winners, did the owners used to bung you at all? Yeah, they used to come round. You had good owners and bad. Some owners never used to bung you anything. Some owners used to come round and maybe, you know, give you a fiver. I mean, nowadays, they get a percentage of the winnings and all that, so it's all changed a lot now. For the better, for the... And people on the television do recognise the, the work that goes on with racing, whereas years ago, I don't think they ever thought about it. Now, you're telling me that um, Mr Biggs, the owner of OXO... Yeah. Treated you all to a, a party at the Bull Hotel after after it, it won. Yeah. And that's when you suddenly got a taste of whiskey. You, yes. <laughs> well, we all went up and sort of ordered lager and limes and stuff like that. I mean, we were only sort of, well, 17, 18 years old then. And um, as soon as they said, oh, Mr. Biggs paid for it all, we went on the scotch and orange. <laughs> and um, we all had a good drink that night and it was quite... Um, quite enjoyable it was a really nice party everyone enjoyed themselves and um, everyone turned up for work the next morning because it was a Sunday and the horses still going out on a Sunday morning and the best thing for an hangover is walking over a dung hill because the ammonia just clears your head <laughs> <laughs> now you, you said that Willie Stevenson was you know in modern day terms, he was quite a brute, really, with, with, with the staff. But yeah. he defended his staff. Oh, yeah. If you were right, he would back you to the hill. You're telling me something that happened at um, Wincanton? Well, there was a, a, fr a good friend of mine who now lives in Norway, John Moore. 
<clears throat> he was had a ride at Wing Canton, and uh, he went with the governor. <coughs> excuse me. And he um, was walking into the weighing room, and he said, um, "Oh, Captain Ryan Price was coming out, and he hit him round the head." And Willie noticed it, and he said, um, when he came out of the weighing room, John, he said, uh, what did Captain Ryan Price hit you for? He said, I don't know, so I just said good morning to him, and he hit me around the head. Oh, he did, did he? I sort that out. And he went over to him in the paddock when all the owners and trainers were there, ready to load, you know, leg the jocks up. And he said... Um, don't you ever lay a finger on any of my boys again. If they want correcting, I'll correct them, not you. And he was really poking his finger at him and telling him where to get off, basically. But that's the sort of man he was. And loads of things that I could... Me and Neville Hill had to go up the house one day and you only went up the house if you were in trouble. <coughs> so... I said to Neville, what have you done wrong? He said, I don't know, I've done nothing wrong. He said, what about you? I said, no, I ain't done nothing wrong. So he goes up there and he goes into the office. It was about half seven one night. And um, he said, I've called you two up here because you're the sensible ones. And we both sort of sniggered a little bit. He said, I'm going to give you a pay rise. All the lads are going to get a 50 pence pay rise. He said, and... While you're up here, if you want to play uh, snooker, because he had a big snooker room table with all the trophies, what he'd won all around the, uh, on the shelves around it. And um, he, um, he said, there's 10 bob for the winner, which was like a week's wages to us, near enough. So we come away with 50 pence each. <laughs> so that was, that was um, that's the good side of him. He, you know, it wasn't all bad. Oh, Roy, I'm, I'm interested. You you come from your um, your nice your sort of life in the city in Enfield, and then you're working with Willie Stevenson, mm. a guy who most people are probably terrified of, and you're riding these racehorses yeah. in all weathers. I mean, it must have been pretty. You know, I, I'm assuming there was no central heating and stuff, so it must have been pretty flipping freezing a lot. Of the oh, time. well, in in the bedrooms they used to have a uh, the old Valor heaters, paraffin heaters. And we used to like them to keep us warm with the night time. But um, it was cold. And your feet were the ones that got cold. And you used to stuff newspaper in your wellingtons if it was wet. Just to keep your feet warm. If it was dry, you had your, your land army girl boots <laughs> and your jobbers. And that was it. If it was raining, sometimes you'd stick newspaper down your jobbers to stop getting too wet. But. Um, Do you have any waterproofs or anything like that? Then? No. You, if you could afford one, you might buy a second-hand riding mat. And they used to have straps inside the um, uh, mats. They used to tie around your legs to keep them close to your legs when you were riding. But mm. um, not many of us had them, unfortunately. But I mean, you all, all a group of lads together. Yeah. There was no, there was no girls there to keep to distract you. So you had a... <laughs> You had a lot of fun. I mean, you were telling me um, about some Boy Scouts. Well, yes, the Boy Scouts, um, we were riding out. It must have been in the summertime because they were camping in a place we called the Valley. And uh, 
if you imagine the laws you're sitting in, all of a sudden you see about 30 or 40 little dots coming running at you. They were jumping and kicking and whipping round, and we were hanging on for dear life. And when they got closer, they were all laughing at us. That really got our backs up. So we thought we'd get our own back on them. And we went that night, because we had to be in by quarter past ten, so we come downstairs, open the uh, dining room window, and went out through the, into the, near enough the yard, and we split into two groups, went up to the, where the valley was, which is half a mile away, split into two groups, and one of us had a flash torch, and one neighbour one side, and the other was the other side, we flashed up that we were in position, and we went down and let all their guy ropes off. And the fire brigade come over and we just legged it back and went back to bed. <laughs> that made the local paper? It did make the local paper and it had dirty trick played on the Boy Scouts. Now there used to be an army camp in Royston. There was an RAF base at Bassingbourne and there was a remand home uh, Nebworth, I think it was Neesworth or Nebworth, Neesworth. So they didn't, they couldn't place it to anyone. So we never heard any more about it. But they didn't run up, up there anymore. <laughs> now go back to the racing. You used to travel with your horses to, to the races. Yes, yeah. Um, and these days, the, the, the lads have got like dormitories at the race course oh, and stuff like that. Yes. Well, some of them, even the, like Chester, you've got an hotel to stay in. Um, so what did you guys have? Well, we used to be, uh, there was sort of like an hostel affair there, uh, and there was always um, a canteen. But sometimes you went out into uh, local people's bed and breakfast sort of thing. Um, it, in Ireland, that still goes on. You go sometimes to, if they haven't got enough space for all the uh, lads, you go to bed and breakfast. But um, I'm never, I remember going one day to Catrick and um, we, we didn't have proper mattresses, but they were straw-filled mattresses on beds. And we, that's what we slept on. And it was gas lamps. It wasn't electricity. It was just gas lamps. And the other thing that amazes me, that I still remember, I think the prize money then was about £3,000 for the winner. And it hasn't changed that much now. Not the way, you know, inflation, everything else has gone up. It's still only, the the, the worst races are sort of £3,000, if some may be less than that. So in some ways, there's too much racing to, for the prize money that is, I don't know how they get it, but that's that's what I, how I feel. Yeah, well, you were telling me that you... Um at least one occasion, you had to sleep next to the horse under a horse blanket. Yeah, well, um, it was my old horse, Barbering. He went to Wolverhampton. I say he broke the course record there first time out over hurdles. First time on a race course, even. And the other horse that I went with, that fell in the first in a, a chase. And the gunner said, well, he's entered tomorrow, so we'll run him again. And he said, will you stay overnight? Well, I said, and you do... When you run a print, you don't say no, you say yes. So I stayed overnight. He said, I can't get you in an hostel or bed and breakfast. He said, but 
I'll leave all the blankets. Well, Les will. Les tidy. He was a he was a lovely man as well. He said, "I'll leave the basket with you, which he, they keep all the um, racing gear in, so he didn't have to bring that up tomorrow. And you use the blankets for that with his big Whitney blankets. And I went to sleep in the stable next to the horse. Uh, we've just stable uh, with um, blankets over me horse blankets." And that's the thing you, you've done. Now, was there, um, like now you have the best turn back, was that a thing when you were a young lad? Uh, no, I think that came in later on. I don't, I can't remember, I never got a best turn out anyway. But uh, we used to have to put our um, porter marks in and um, one on the neck, one on the shoulder, which was a diamond on the shoulder. And you could put, um, like, fingers is a better way to call it, on their side of their rumps. And you could put diamonds on the on their tops of their rumps as well. So it was, that's what you've done. And, you, and Les taught me how to plait up. And the only thing I can't do, or never been taught to do, was plait up with elastic bands. Now the, you see the youngsters all got elastic bands and they look very neat and tidy. And you'd always tell a French racehorse running in England because it'll have big uh, plaits where ours are all quite neat and tidy. Well, you're not, and you're not overly impressed with the fact they use uh, templates these days? Well, no. Um, there's only one trainer I know that, that I think he don't like them using. That's Mark Prescott. He, he said, you use just the brushes. That's what you were taught when he was a lad, I suppose, or uh, when he got into racing. I right. like Samark because he's what I call old school, and he's a very intelligent man to listen to. If anyone ever gets a chance to go and listen to him talking in an after-dinner speech, go, because it's, it's well worth it. Right, now, will you... No, you're doing it now, aren't you? So it's uh, well worth listening to you. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> no, you want, I assume you wanted to be a jockey when you first started. Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely wanted so to be a jockey. Did, why, why didn't it happen for you? Um, basically, I wasn't good enough, I suppose. But the thing was, I was six stone 11 when I went into racing. And I think I was about nine stone when I left. So my weight was against me. But at 14, 15, when you're 6 stone 11, you don't think you'll ever need to get to 9 stone. And a good friend of mine, little uh, Des Cullen, he done 7-7, seven, seven, and even when he retired, he could do 7-7. Seven, seven. So he was a, a very lightweight lad. Right, now you, you showed us your tattoo of barbering mm. at the beginning. Now I understand that barbering was the end of your first part of your first part of your life in racing so what happened there well when you get older uh, older teenager you you do things that sometimes you regret doing and um i was very friendly with a uh a, a man in the raf who was um an m worked in the mt as an uh an instructor and he said he wanted to get up to Scotland to see his wife and his mum and dad any chance of going up with him because I had a car at the time 
And uh, I said, yeah, he said, I'll, I'll supply all the fuel, which was very powerful aviation fuel. <laughs> and it was, mine was a little Morris 8 Series E. Lovely little car, still remember it, still can smell the leather upholstery in it. And um, so that's what I did. I went to Scotland, had a great time, got drunk, more whiskey. <laughs> but anyway, we, we came home and I walked up the yard on the Monday morning and I was told I haven't got barbering anymore. So I thought, well, there's nothing here to hold me here now. And I left. But the lads took me out for a farewell drink on the Friday night. And I used to drink a, a brown ale called a poacher, which was made by Flowers Brewery. And they were sticking vodka in the bottleneck. So I got absolutely really, really drunk. And I've never touched vodka since. But that was, that was nice of the lads. And I went home. And that, that was basically... Um, my time in racing. Although I did go down to Royston a few times afterwards to ride out, and well, he he didn't never say anything. He said he did come up to me. He said, "Roy he said, okay, you might have never made a jockey." He said, "But there's loads of other jobs in racing that you can do." And looking back now, sometime I wish I never left. But then, in other ways, I've had a good life and really enjoyed going back into racing later on. Okay, we'll talk about that in the last part, mm. but so is that yard in Royston still there? No, the yard in Royston isn't there anymore. It's um, a small housing estate on it. Uh, the barn, the big barn's still there and is in King Street and you've got um, a plaque on it of Willie Stevenson, uh, a Derby winner and, Arctic, and Grand National winner um, on this plaque. Now, Royston isn't far from Newmarket, is it? No. So, what do you miss about Newmarket? Well, I had to box at Newmarket. Willie was a great thing in boxing. He liked the stable lads boxing. And he arranged at the Corn Exchange in Cambridge to box. So, I was, I, you got, I said, well, I've been told by doctors I mustn't box. He said, you're boxing. So, I was boxing. And me and Graham Tidy, the Ed Lad's son, we had the box in, in um, Cambridge Corn Exchange, which I did win that fight. But um, then there was an, another uh, boxing tournament in Newmarket, and I had to fight there as well, and I got a good hiding. But I should never forget young Desi Cullen fighting there. And there was um, a well-known... Um, boxing promoter and I can't think of his name now and he um, he said I've never seen two lads fight like Des and this other lad they had no finesse but they stood in the middle of the ring and slogged it out for three rounds and I want to give them a fiver each for doing that and that you know that, that was my uh, initiation in the boxing game Right, Roy, so, so basically barbering, who you've got tattooed on your arm, was, mm. you know, the, the reason you left yeah. as, uh, your career. Yeah. So you were out of the game for a fair while. Um, so when, when did you get back into racing? Uh, I got back into racing was about um, 
19, mid-1990s, I think. And my niece was getting married. And I decided to get an horseshoe for her, climbed up uh, as a, a good luck charm for a, a wedding. And I went to see John Jenkins at Royston. And um, before I saw him, I used to work out in a gym. And I got so, uh, I didn't like it that much because there were so many poses there. And I was just a fat cab driver trying to lose a bit of weight, which never succeeded. So I thought, what else can I do? I said, well, I can ride horses. So when I see John Jenkins, he said, yes, you can have the horseshoe, no problem at all. I said, any chance of riding out at all? He said, have you ridden out before? I said, yeah, I served me time with Willie Stevenson. You're good enough to ride out for him, you're good enough to ride out for me. So I was with John for about three, three or four years, just going, riding out Wednesdays, because I used to do half day on a Wednesday cabin, and I had Saturdays off, but I worked Sundays. And... Um, we became, you know, good friends. Him and his wife, Wendy, and his two girls. Um, and I loved it. it the peace, the, after working in London and then being on the horse for um, a couple of hours a day on a Wednesday and on the Saturday, I used to ride out three lots on the Saturday. But I remember the first time I rode out, because I hadn't rode out since the late 50s, I got off the horse and my knees crumbled. <laughs> you tell you told me that you saw a horse being a, a horse savaging a lad in oh, the box. I was in in the yard getting an horse ready, and I heard this lad screaming. So I ran over to his box, and the the horse was kneeling down, and he had the shoulder of the lad in his mouth, pulling him to the ground and trying to savage him. And I just threw the head collar at him, what I had, and um, he let go, and he just stood in the, at the corner of the major. And I said to John, is he like it? He said, well, he has been like it before. He said, I'll find out why he's like it. So he delved into the uh, his breeding and everything else, and they found out that his mother, the horse's mother, died at birth, so he had, he had no instructions how to behave as a, as a foal. And that's just one of the stories I had. You, then then ha tell me how you got involved with um, Willie Haggis. Well, um, I was still cabin at the time and we'd moved from Chesant to um, a little village called Meeple in between Ely and Chatteris. And I used to get the coach uh, from... St Ives to King's Cross to pick my cab up and they, they stopped the coach service so I thought well I can't afford to go by train every day so I looked around for another job and I found in the racing post an advert for a box driver by C&J Racehorse Transport so um, I got a job working with them I said I don't want to do any overseas work I've done all that um, you know so one of the first jobs I did for him was to go into Willie Haggis's yard and take an horse racing. I can't even remember where we went now. 
But uh, William come up to me and uh, he said, good morning. I said, oh, good morning, sir. He said, no, he said, my name is William and my wife is Maureen. And that was unusual for me because when I left racing, everyone was sir and madam. But things change in the world. But uh, he was a, he, William was a really nice man and gentleman. And I know one, uh, I took a good horse of his chorus to Ireland and it won, I think, the Pretty Polly out there. And the week after, he came back and we was at some... Yarmouth Racecourse, he said, Roy, you're part of the team, you go and get the presentation and representing the, the stables, which I did do, and I've got a photograph at home showing me getting presented with the racehorse, uh, with a, a picture frame, which I thought was very nice of him. And believe it or not, the same thing happened in Cologne when I decided to stop driving uh, horse boxes at the age of 70-odd. I um, I took one of some Mark's horses out there. I believe it was Albanova, and which was the grandmother of Alpinista, who won the the Ark. And um, uh, I got presented with a a picture of me with the trophy at the the Cologne Racecourse. Now you've made. You've met some you know, nice people along the way. You wanted to tell me a bit about your mate, Nobby Clark. Oh, well, when we, when I, me and, it was me, Paul Atwood and Tommy Brindley. We were good friends. Unfortunately, we've lost track of Tom. I'd, if anyone knows him, I'd like to meet him again, and so would Paul, because we had some good times together. And we left the hostel together, and we stopped in... Uh, Nobby Clark had a, a big flat, uh, which was Willie Stevenson's, and we stayed with that family. And they were n really nice. Uh, Nobby, you could talk to him, he'd listen. Uh, his wife was a lovely lady as well, and we had lovely food. Our breakfasts were always ready when we got back from morning uh, stables, riding out first lot. And it was just a pleasure to, to be there. We were sort of part of their family. But unfortunately, they had a family growing up and they needed the room, so we moved out. And then I, I moved in with um, Eric Mercer, uh, Jesse Mercer, because he was a new lad in, in Royston and he was an apprentice at Willie Stevenson's. And they thought it'd be good, because I had a car by then, and it'd be a good idea for me to... Uh, be with um, Eric and we're still, we still we don't talk that often but he lives up in real but we still um, if we have a reunion again I should try and get up there to, and hopefully he can come down as well um, but Nobby Nobby he, unfortunately Nobby died at a fairly young age really compared to the way people live these days and he, he died on the gallops in Newmarket and his good friend Steve Corbin tried to keep him alive. And I think Steve was quite upset about him dying on the gallops. But he, and I, I still keep, keep in contact with Gig Clark, his son. And um, it was just a nice family to be with. And you knew Bruce Raymond as well? Yeah, Bruce Raymond, when he came to, to Royston as an apprentice, 
his bed was at the foot of mine in the hostel. And um, yeah, he, he was a nice man. His, his father worked for de Havilland at Hatfield. And I still see Bruce occasionally. I see him on the telly quite a lot because he's a, a racing manager. And he told me, was I was with Paul at the time, me and Paul Atwood were at, um, at his bungalow in, in um, Newmarket and we were talking about yearlings. He said, where we used to take three to six weeks to break a yearling in, he said, they put them on the walkers, Clive Britton, this was Clive Britton's yard, they put them on the walkers and they walked them round one way and they turned them round and walked them round the other way and within a week they are being ridden away which is, we never used to lunge them, boatways, put a caverson on them, which is a part of our headgear, and the bridle had keys in to keep their mouths soft, so they, um, you know, had good mouths. That's the most important thing with racehorses, to have good mouths. Some have got, it's, I think it's to do with the breeding, they've got good mouths, some are very light mouth, and they have rubber bits and stuff like that in. So it's, it's a lot to breaking horses in and just um, riding them. There's a good uh, thing on, I think it's on Google. If you see them, the people in Ireland breaking the yearlings in, they have so much faith in their yearlings, they stand on their saddles and they've got, or kneel on them. And, and uh, I think we, we could never do that, not with our yearlings. And... <laughs> Talking about yearlings, we used to have them come in from Ireland, not by Allsbox, on a train at Royston. And you used to have to go down there at uh, 10, 11 o'clock at night to pick these, horse, these yearlings up. And they're in a loose box, in a railway box, which you don't see them now. You might see them in a museum. And we used to have to go through an hole, pitch black, couldn't, didn't know where their back end was, where their front end was, and you were just talking to them and feeling them, and they must have been as frightened as, as we were. <laughs> and eventually you found the head and you put an head collar on them, or sometimes they might already have head collar on. And then they would open and say, you, I've got it and I've got me uh, lunging rain on it. And they would lift this, open up the box so you could walk it out. And you'd walk up, from the station in Royston up to King Street to the where the stables were and put them to bed for the night. And you didn't know what you were, whether they were fillies, colts or what. And so it was, it was quite a, a thrilling time, I would say. Now you mix with some um, some quite no, quite famous people. You've got a story about Sir Alex Ferguson. You weren't overly enamoured with him at Royal Ascot. No, I was at Royal Ascot one day and like the box drivers and... Um, well, let's put it, start from the beginning. I was old school, so when I went racing, I would change from my working clothes to a suit, collar and tie. So we call it booted and suited. And I was at Royal Ascot, booted and suited, and going with the grooms and the box drivers, who, who not all the box drivers used to go to the races, but I did, because that's why I was doing the job, because I liked the racing. And I was in the uh, rooms area where they got a special little stand to watch the racing. And who's in there? 
Sir Alex Ferguson. And I thought, well, he, he can go anywhere. He most likely got a private box somewhere and he's in our area, which is for the stable staff. And I didn't think that was very, very good. So how old were you when you finally hung up your riding boots and your, your, your horse box keys? Uh, I must have been about in my 70s, early 70s. I think it was 2012. I think look, it's looking back on it, you've obviously really enjoyed it, but even though oh, it was two parts of your life, yeah. is there anything you'd have done differently? Oh, most likely, it's, hindsight is a very fine thing, but um, I would have most likely would have liked to stayed in racing than leave racing. Um, because now you get a percentage, you know. I mean, some people, I believe the lad that looked up Stradivarius, the winnings he got from that horse paid for a bungalow for him. You know, which is saying that we never got. I think uh, Titch Jelly, who looked after Oscar uh, Oxo when he won the national, I think he got about five or six hundred pounds. I don't know how much he got, but it wasn't nowhere near the mountain they get today. So it has improved racing, which I'm glad it has improved for the youngsters. I used to feel very sorry for the youngsters. And when <laughs> the funny story, um, when I was helping John Jenkins out, there were some girls there, so I bought all the lads some socks and that for Christmas, and the girls, I thought, oh, I'll have a bit of a laugh with him. So I got some key rings, which was a, a red double-decker bus and a black cab, key rings. But what I'd done, I went to an Ann Summers shop and got some bags, I don't want to buy any gear, I just want some bags. So, eventually, I bunged him 20 quid. I was a cabbie at the time, so I was earning a few bob. And I, I bought about three, three, three or four bags. I can't remember how many girls I bought for now. But I wrote on them, wrapped them all up. Hope you enjoy the little black number. Hope you enjoy the little red number. And I gave them to these girls for Christmas now, whether they opened it at home or, or in front of their parents, anything like that. But when they opened it, it was a little black number, it was a little black uh, London cab, and the red one was a little double-decker bus. <laughs> oh, dear boy. Well, anyway, I, I really, really appreciate the time you've taken to speak to us. And um, this one, that I assume is an easy answer. Have you still missed the game? Yes. I'm, I'm now, I've, I've joined a, a racing club now, National Hunt Racing Club, and I've been about oh, five or six times, and I've still got my badges hanging up, because you get an owners and trainers badge, and uh, I'll go to the owners and trainers now. I talk to um, the rest of the group and explain what happens and what goes on. Uh, I've made friends with a lad I used to work with. He was a lot younger than me. And his son's a racehorse trainer now. Toby Laws is the trainer. And his, his dad is um, uh, Jeremy Laws. And he worked with me at WM Wood Aulidge when I first started going overseas. He was working in the office and I was driving all over Europe. Anyway, so you mentioned some of your mates. So anyone that knows you that you've lost contact with, you'd like to, you'd like to um, if they get hold of us, then we can get hold yeah. of you. Uh, Tommy Brinley. 
if he's still alive. I mean, we're all in our 80s now. I mean, my mate Paul is still alive, and I'll, I'll keep in touch with him, Paul. John Moore lives in Norway, I'll still keep in touch with him. Unfortunately, Tony Curzon, Nick Mullins um, has passed away. Yeah. And, of course, Willie's daughters, Marcella, Elizabeth, Christine, Gillian. Gillian was uh, Bruce Raymond's first wife. So it's sad, that, but that's, that's life. Well, you've, you've, led a, you've led a good one with, with the racing. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. It's lo lovely to look back on your memories. Because yeah. it's just... Oh, the even going back to um, my later days in racing, uh, at the Ark, I mean, we used to go out, over, walk over the river, over the Seine to a... It was an Irish bar, we used to go in there, but it was expensive, but we, we still went in there. And we used to go to Chinese. Um, I've been, and some great people, Alison West from uh, Sir Mark Prescott. Now, um, Johnson, not Mark Johnson, Ferguson, James Ferguson. She, she's uh, travelling head girl for James now. And lovely people, lovely people in racing. Nick Litmoden, um... James Eustace, he was a nice man. Yeah. Well, if um, anyone wants to get hold of you, they can get hold of me. Yeah. And then we'll get hold of you yeah. and then put you in contact. So, uh, yeah. well, Harknet, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's <laughs>